the Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscara, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nothing spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got game him. Winning. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. JJ German for the win. He got it. JJ German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff, and you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Wednesday, Sandos and the Sidekick, Saturday ETSU and the Citadel. We'll hear from the press conference from Randy Sanders on Monday. We'll talk to the play-by-play voice of the Citadel Bulldogs, Luke Morrow. We'll also hear from Adam Sayers, who tonight will begin his quest in the conference tournament. And last but not least, the Stats FCS Top 25. Mike Gallagher, middle of the week. How you doing, buddy? Pretty good. How about yourself? All right, go hit it. All right. That's formalities that we have going on. I sure. felt like the game was truly there for us. Not that we haven't had opportunities against, you know, VMI or against Furman, Wofford, or Chattanooga or whatever, but that game was truly there for us to take control of, and we never took control of it. That was probably the thing that was the most frustrating to me is that we weren't able to just take it. I felt like that opportunity was truly there for a number of reasons, which I don't really want to get into right now, but it it was there for us, and we just weren't able to take it, and that was what caused that reaction from me. So on Monday, we talked about some questions that we were going to ask in the press conference, and that was one of them. Why was anger the emotion from head coach Randy Sanders? He said in the postgame with you on Saturday that he had felt sick, disappointed, uh, a number of of yeah, but never this angry after a game and maybe he meant as a head coach maybe he meant in his coaching career if so that's about 30 years and that's quite the statement but you could hear that he really thought that there were chances in the game he could look back on and certainly right after the game where and maybe it was multiple and that's my guess if he's that angry that there was probably five six seven that he felt in the first half and early in the third quarter that there were things the Bucks could have done to really seal it up or at the very least give themselves some breathing room but obviously that didn't happen which led to the anger that's the first of what we wanted to have questions answered and the others coming up I, you know, it was interesting the way he he kind of said that because he took you through sort of the gamut of all the the emotions that he's had, but you could kind of feel it at that point in time, right? Like it was a different animal. Not, I also think that when you lose those that many different ways that ETSU's found a way to lose, sort of like the opposite of how it was last year of how many different ways they found to win. I it was I I don't know if that built up as well. You know, he didn't really get to that point like is it angry because of all the other ways and you think this particular game at this time because of the other six seven eight games you've played you would got over some of those mistakes or little crucial errors you know 10 guys doing their job one guy not type deal I don't, I don't know it's still a lot to 
to, to figure out exactly what, what he wanted to say there. He tried to like, let you have a little bit of dive into it, but I almost think that some of it is just because it's probably the same thing happening over again. It's, it's like the definition of insanity, right? I think it has to be because for me, and I don't know about you, but I didn't think that the Stanford game was at the top of the list. I, I don't even know if it was top three for me in terms of most winnable games. And coach looks at things a lot differently than us. He's the coach. He's in that position for a reason. We're talking about it for a reason, and we're not – football experts certainly not to the level of the coaches on that staff and especially the head coach Randy Sanders but I look at the games this year and I think Chattanooga to me was the most winnable I mean that the three missed field goals and you're given chance after chance after chance it could never seize it now maybe you didn't play overall as well or again it's hard to know without knowing how coach Sanders is thinking about this what angle he's coming at it from because I certainly think about Chattanooga as the biggest missed opportunity. That's just me, and I think that VMI may be number two for me, and then maybe Sanford is three, though Furman can be right there too because you had the 50-50 ball thrown up by wow. Darren Granger, and you had the Every drop. time you bring up something, it makes me sick to my stomach too. <laughs> and you drop the pass if you're Jamal Couch, or it's a little underthrown depending on your perspective. Either way, it wasn't play wasn't made. Furman, play wasn't made, exactly. So, I don't know. That's kind of my list. What's yours? I mean, I mean even Chattanooga play wasn't made. Spagnoletti there. Uh, I mean, you. there's a lot of guys. I, I think VMI, for me, is one for the simple reason that you had a chance to kick a field goal that would have, you know, and, and Keltner's been phenomenal. He's 9 of 11. Had made and, every other one and, going into last right. week. That's right, and had been really on a roll. And credit to him, he came back the next week in a similar situation and made the field goal. You know, and if you look at everybody, love, and we do too, loves J.J. German, but you look at what J.J. German did his freshman year, it pales in comparison to what Keltner's doing right now and what will continue to do, I believe, in his career. And he's got a shot to surpass J.J.'s marks if he continues to play this way. So, uh, although I hope he gets a lot more opportunities to kick extra points moving forward as opposed to just field goals. But you look at that one, and, and it wasn't just that. I mean, if ETSU played 7% better, 10% better, they win the VMI game. I mean, there were so many more mistakes, I think, in the VMI game than any other uh, to me. Then the, they played the best game, I thought, defensively that they put up in a long time against Furman, Furman yeah. and the offense just couldn't quite get enough plays. Chattanooga was a little bit of everything. Uh, offense yeah. had a lull. They couldn't do anything. All of a sudden, defense had some lulls. It couldn't stop anybody. Um, Sanford felt was, the, was one of the few times I – there was real – you can make a real good argument that they should have had an extra 17 or 20 points on the board in the first half, uh, probably more than any other first half. And maybe that's what he's talking about was he thought he could have had a lead um, in that half, you know, maybe of, of, of seven – you know, at least 10 to 17, maybe even 21 points difference than where they were there. And then even in the second half, he still had a chance to score a touchdown, didn't, had himself for a field goal. You know, there's a lot of things. So, I, I think VMI is one. I think probably Chat two, then Furman three, then Sanford four. To be honest with you, so we probably just flip the top two and we're right in the. That's same it. Page. But we're all in the, we're in the same thinking. The though. only way that I think that I can see this from Coach Sanders' side, and maybe this is what he's talking about, and if so, it makes all the sense in the world, is that if you just do what you do, the other nine times out of ten, if you're Quay Holmes and you catch the pitch. Or if you're Trey Mitchell and you make the throw into the gut of Will Huzzy, who's six yards ahead of you. Or if you're Will Huzzy, you make the catch that's maybe a foot behind you. Those are two turnovers that don't happen. And then how does the game change from there? And so those things. Yeah, then you don't even have that last turnover, right? Yeah. Because you're not trying to. Yeah. So, you know, it, right. And then the last one where it's a snap that's 
on your hip, you know, and, and that doesn't work out. And then you kick it and obviously just raining, pouring. And speaking of raining and pouring, when it rains, it does pours literally, as you, as you said in the broadcast. But uh, raining and pouring most on ETSU's last drive, which led me to ask Coach, does it just feel like the football gods are a bit against you this year with how that last possession shook out on top of everything else this season? I can't tell you that that did not go through my mind. Wow, what a time for it just to start pouring and, and win. It, it, but so what? Now what? It happened. Let's go. The thing that was that also went through my mind, they do a great job pooch punting that thing and giving it to us at the five-yard line. We got to go 95 yards. We got to score a touchdown. It starts raining. The wind starts blowing. And I've been waiting all year for an opportunity to go out and practice in the rain. And we have not had one single opportunity to go out and practice in the rain all year. Now, we've done wet ball. We've tried to simulate it, but it's never the same until you actually do it. And we've had one of those years where we, we haven't had a rainy day. So all those things entered my mind briefly between everything else. But we had a job to do. Samford got the job done. We didn't. Basically what it comes down to. Cowboy up and go play ball. I don't have let's go on the butt bar anymore, but at least we do Cowboy have. up and go play ball. And you heard a let's go in that broadcast, or that soundbite, I should say, from Coach Sanders. Really interesting answer to me, and it's true. I mean, I have looked around the entire – Last half of summer, early part of fall, waiting for rain. Hasn't really come, especially during the afternoon hours where Coach Sanders would have been out there with the team or at night when Coach Sanders would have been out there with the team. And, of course, the last chance you have to finish above 500 or even with 500, I should say, right at 500 in the conference, finish 4-4. Four and four. And the start to that is going back down the field, getting either the game-tying or game-winning score against Stanford, depending on what you do with the point after naturally it would rain harder than it's rained in the lives of etsu football players the entire season the entire three months they've been together so um good answer by coach sanders and very insightful as well i mean some some years that luck or the football gods are just not smiling upon you i mean if, if you if you play golf i play golf i firmly believe that right the golf gods uh you know, if you if you're always against me uh, if you don't toe wedge it underneath the tree maybe you play it out somewhere down the road maybe you you snake in a putt or something that gets going. So firm firm believer of of those things happen, but law of averages maybe. Maybe, you know, you, you win six tight games last year and somehow you're not going to win six tight games this year. But if that's the case, then we have to win one at some point. And was that Austin P? Does that count? Because last year ETSU was 6-1, and one, the only loss being the last game against Jacksonville State. So um, are we going to be one and six? Oh, I t- I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping we can find another one. Hope we can find another one. That's a, all right, next bye. I expect you using more. I talked with Tyler. Uh, I was planning on playing him early. I, I thought when he got in there, he he did all right. I mean, handed off. He he had one decision, second down play. He kind of got fooled by the coverage, but it was it was a good disguise by Sanford. I can see where that did confuse him a little bit. Third down play, he hits. Keith right in the head with the ball, and we, we drop it. Biggest reason I didn't play him anymore was he's not the biggest guy, doesn't have the biggest hands. First game we played in the rain, he throws a dry ball much better than a wet one. Let me say it that way. As I talked about, the game was there for us. If we didn't make the big mistakes, we were going to be okay. And I trusted, at that point, I trusted Trey not to make the big mistakes. So I, I made that decision. I, I expect Tyler to play more going forward. I, w- I would have liked to have played him more, but that, that was the thought process behind it. I mean, I got to be honest. There, there was a while there where Trey got kind of on fire and and really made it. And what, there were drop balls that weren't his fault. And then second in the third quarter, there weren't many throws he made that were bad. 
um, if any, in any any bad decision. And, you know, again, led you to a couple touchdown drives. Of course, Quay Holmes, a big part of the one drive, if not every single bit of it, except for the one yard that Trey got to finish off the drive. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think Mitchell threw a completion to start that drive. And then Trey threw a couple of balls again, either the Braxton Richburg drop. There was one. Um, uh, he did throw one behind Spagnoletti that, that on the top of my head that, that really um, Spagnoletti really couldn't do anything with it, even tried to stop, turn around, and make play, and it really went against him. But I thought he did a good, good job of delivering the football, putting his team in the right spot, going down the field, making throws, getting some help with that Keith Coffey screenplay, got him to the one. You know, he took the sack there, but – Really, honestly, there was, a, there was a whiff on a block, and so that's why I ended up taking the sack on the goal line. And ETSU really should have scored on the second down on one, but again, another missed block. So the offensive line that did, that did a fairly good job against a, a stingy Sanford front four of holding up for the most part, uh, a little disappointed in those two plays. But I thought Trey played well enough in the second and third quarter that you really didn't have a chance to play Rydell unless maybe more of those – drives led to scores and then maybe you could do it that way but at that point in time I don't know that you had an opportunity really to put Rydell in there that was my thought he kind of led you in there to, to some of the inner workings about his hands maybe being smaller not being able to throw the way all that stuff and he had practice in it right and the reason he makes perfect sense to me I mean he's a smaller guy 5'11 174 I've seen him throw some balls at practice that come out of his hands on wet ball drills a little duckish you know and with smaller hands, that's just bound to happen. It was raining. It was pouring. It was coming down heavy at certain times of the game. The series he was in, three and out. But, again, you heard Coach Sanders explain there, not much he really could have done. I mean, he handed it off, did that fine, hit a guy in the head, hands, whatever you want to call it. Keith Coffey dropped it. Um, and then in between those two plays, the quote-unquote misread, sounded like Coach Sanders characterized that as, for the freshman, and he is a freshman, so he's probably more likely as someone playing his first actual game, first action in a contest on a Saturday that matters to make the big mistake, right? Where Trey Mitchell is not as likely to do that, especially considering that Mitchell has only thrown, what, six interceptions down this year? Or is it still five? Five interceptions this year? So uh, he's shown that he's a smart guy. He plays the quarterback position, how Coach Sanders wants it to be played. And as we talked about on Monday, I don't think there is a ton of that separates Austin Herrick from Trey Mitchell from last year to this year. And the results obviously win loss say differently, but 166 yards averaging throwing the ball per game for Mitchell, 167 last year for Herrick. The efficiency is basically the same. The touchdown interception is better for Trey Mitchell. The completion percentage is practically the same. So not to belabor the point, but Trey Mitchell is not the sole reason for this. I just thought the timing, and this is why I asked Coach Sanders, the timing a bit odd to only have him be in the one series considering you have four games to play him where you still get the red shirt with that new red shirt rule. Uh, but he explained it, and I, it makes a lot more sense to me now than it did before. Well, and, and I think, you know, you're still – you want to work guys in are still trying to win the game. Right. And at that point in time, Trey was moving the football. I think – and we've talked about this off I don't think ETSU's offense is good enough right now to where if Mitchell's had two, three great drives or he's really in a rhythm that you can say, okay, go sit on the sideline for a series or two and then get back in there. And so when Trey was playing well, and even I talked to Tyler about it, um, and, and he actually said, he said, you know, Trey got playing pretty well there in the second quarter, and it was, you know, I could see why Coach wanted wanted to stay with him in that situation. But, I, you know, I think you will see more of and, – and it's a different environment, right? You get to do – playing a home game is going to be much better for you. Now, granted, Sanford, because the weather, uh, there was non-existent crowd, so that probably – um, could have lended itself, but the weather was was horrific. 
uh, a lot of things not working in his favor. And again, I, I think it's funny the trajectory of Rodell changes if Keith Coffey maybe where he caught the same screen pass later in the game and went 33 yards. If he does that for Rodell on that throw, does that change the trajectory of what we're talking about, Tyler Rodell, right now because of drop pass? One thing going forward will be interesting to look at, and we didn't get into this much detail, and I don't think Coach Sanders will give us this much detail with opponents still ahead, but how much will they use Tyler Rydell? He said that he wanted to use more in that contest against Stanford. New chance, as you said, better environment, hopefully better weather against Citadel. Speaking of Citadel. It takes a lot of uh, discipline by a number of people. Guys have to have great eye discipline. Have to, I say it all the time, but they have to do their job. If you're responsible for the dive, you better take the dive. If you're responsible for the quarterback, you better take quarterback. If you have pitch, don't get nosing around there on the quarterback. Go play pitch. So that's critical defensively. Now, offensively, we have to understand that you're probably not going to get the ball 12, 13, 14 times. You're probably going to get it seven or eight. So you better take advantage of those opportunities. It's not a high possession game. They're going to try to shorten the game, shorten the possessions, try to take advantage of what they do. We have to take advantage of ours. It's no different than Wofford. That wasn't a big possession game. Didn't have the ball many times. And you got to take advantage of the opportunities when you get them. And, you know, defensively, we did a great job last year. We stopped them a couple times on fourth down, created some opportunities. We got a uh, pick six there late in the game. You know, if you can create some turnovers, get some stops like that, it can put them behind the eight ball because while they throw it okay, that's not their forte. They want to run that three-back offense. Defense has to be really disciplined. Offense has to take advantage of the opportunities, and it takes a total team effort to beat a team like this running that, that style offense. 26-23 last year, 31-25 when Citadel was ranked number 13 in the country two years ago. I certainly think I know how this game's going to go. I think I know how most games are going to go, though, and I have often been wrong. What about you? One-score game? It's a one-score game, and the 31-25 is a bit baffling because I still go back to Titus Tucker, the freshman at that time, has an interception in his hands, mm -hmm. and somehow at the last second it just kind of goes through his hands and right into Raleigh Webb's hands, and he walks into the end zone, and it just changes the whole. And that was a second-half touchdown, if I'm not mistaken, third quarter, and it changed sort of the whole uh, feeling of that. And so uh, I still think about that, and in the same token, I'm sure Citadel's – thinking about a couple of uh colby kelly catches that that were a bit acrobatic and a couple of austin herring scramble runs for first downs they'd like to have back from the year before rally webb's had some big games against etsu two years ago two touchdowns and i think we're going to hear from luke morrow here after the break he'll talk a lot about rally webb i'm sure as well as brandon rainey there's some incredible stats about rainey to webb and also rainey kind of on his own as he's transitioned to being a quarterback after his high school days where he was off in a wide receiver so excited to talk to him as i researched uh, and just like you and we write down our questions or, or thoughts ahead of time i've got a couple of questions about some numbers that i thought even wouldn't be possible so that being said let's talk to luke morrow let's get him on the phone we'll talk to him have him break down citadel bulldogs force right after this timeout and santa's sidekick on the bucket air watch that work over the last 70 years johnson city power board has had a few different looks but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on now we've changed our name to bright ridge to match our vision to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com.
Sandos and the Sidekick back with you on this Wednesday. Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher. Join us via the telephone as we have every single Wednesday. The opposing team's play-by-play man. That's Luke Morrow for the Citadel Bulldogs. And Luke, first question I got really is, is ETSU and Citadel in a competition for the last two years to see who can compete in the most one-score games, period? Because it feels like both of them refuse to give anything but the people their money's worth when they come watch the game. Yeah, you got that right. That's what I've always said with the Citadel team now over my, my two years here is that, you know, they may not win every week, but they'll certainly make it interesting and, and fun to not only broadcast, but certainly come watch the game. And, and that's the thing, too, with their offense or that triple option offense, uh, even going back to their game with Georgia Tech earlier this year or when they've been underdogs by 20 points in games against certain opponents, it's hard to run away from this team because, as we saw this past week against Mercer, Mercer had seven possessions because the Citadel keeps the football for so long. So it's hard to get blowouts against the Citadel because you just don't have enough possessions to be able to pull away from them. So, yeah, uh, you guys know it well this year, but but the Citadel, they play nothing but, but close, uh, heart-thumping games there in the fourth quarter that usually come down to a couple plays late. And those won ETSU's way last year on this side of the ball, Luke. Six and one in one-score games. This year, one and four. And I'm wondering, you look at the Bulldogs, three one-score losses, three last year, Three of their four this year have been one score. We pound our heads against the wall every single week, whether it be with coaches, with players, ourselves here on the podcast, talking about the reasoning behind why close games go one way or another, and oftentimes it comes down to uh, youth. A couple plays here and there. Don't have enough veteran leadership on a young team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are the storylines, the thoughts, and the feelings from not only yourself but around the program at Citadel about why games go one way or another? Well, Coach Thompson touched on two things for, for why he believes the team has improved. And for one, it is that, that youth and finding ways to win and learning how to win. But the two one, the two that he normally brings up, uh, one being the physicality that they've improved on specifically over these last couple of weeks during this winning streak and uh, just being more physical than the other teams and being able to wear them down by the fourth quarter, which is what the Siddle always wants to do. And the other thing, too, is just hand, handling – uh, the uh, adversity that comes throughout a game, whether it's when you turn the football over to keep the other team from scoring with a short field or keeping them out of the end zone. And then when you get turnovers, being able to turn that into points and also just not letting those turnovers or those mistakes uh, get you down over the course of the game. So when you do turn the football over, when you do make a mistake, keep that one error uh, from turning into two or three. If you turn it over, don't let that result in seven points for the other team. Uh, nip it in the bud there so those are the two things that coach has always pointed to and I'm with you about the youth I think teams just sometimes need to find ways to to win or learn how to win along the way and and sometimes bad breaks and bad luck and bad bounces go into it as well and and the Bulldogs have dealt with their handful of those uh, over the past couple of seasons but have found a way to win more recently and that's interesting, Jay, that other reason, because ETSU has done such a good job of even though they've turned the ball over more than they've taken the ball away, only allowing two defend or I should say two scores off of turnovers this year for the opponent. Yeah, the plus minus for ETSU clearly down. And that's one of the reasons, Luke, that ETSU's lost those games because it was flipped uh, the, the previous season and now they're losing a turnover battle. But it is crazy because they've only given up 14 points, I think, uh, almost about as many turnovers. Uh, and, and so that's incredible because normally you're thinking, well, if you can just get about half of the turnovers, not to result in points. But And you look at the, the Citadel and what they've been able to do, and physicalities, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say I just went and watched the, the game against Furman, and I was impressed with really similar to what ETSU was able to do, but really just kind of hit Furman right in the mouth, for lack of a better term. 
and then watch Citadel just kind of impose their will as the game kept going, especially the way Bobby Rainey was able to run that offense. Yeah, certainly. And I think even uh, for that Furman game, like the rain, when you look at that game and it looks like uh, the way the Citadel came out and with the weather elements, it was such a nasty day that uh, you look at the Furman side and, I mean, their guys almost look like they didn't want to be out there, whereas the Citadel, they thrive in those types of situations where they're able to just run it down a team's throat. But that's what has led to this current three-game winning streak is being able to increase the physicalness of this team, getting a healthy Rainey back after he injured his knee against Georgia Tech. And each of the last three weeks, they have set a new season high for rushing yards, um, which is exactly what they want to do. So the ground game has been much more successful for them. They're able to run downhill with a healthy quarterback who was once a fullback. So that's the style of, of running that he brings to that position for the Citadel in this triple option offense. And that's just their MO. Uh, these guys are up early, out there running and training every morning. They want to wear you down. They want to be more physical. They want to be tougher than you on a Saturday. And uh, that's what they, they hang their hat on, and that's what they've been able to do at least in the last couple of weeks. Well, and he's already set, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a new program single-season record because he's accounted for 23 touchdowns. And actually, his freshman year, he played quite a bit against ETSU as a fullback, and then we saw him, uh, you know, obviously at the, the quarterback position. Uh, recently, but I, that's amazing to me because there's a lot of running quarterbacks uh, that have played at the Citadel that have put up some gaudy numbers, and for him to have count for 23 touchdowns, I think is impressive. And he's still got three or four games to go. Yeah, that's the thing about it. And he didn't play against Charleston Southern, and he missed the fourth quarter in overtime against Georgia Tech. So he's not only done it through the first nine games of the season, but for him, he hasn't even played eight full games, and he broke a record that had been around for a number of decades. Uh, it, it has been impressive what Brandon has done. He's been able to find the, the end zone with his legs. And the most impressive part has been his arm this year with his connection to Riley Webb in the pass game, where if anyone that's familiar with his offense knows, not only do they love to run the football, but they kind of lull you to sleep, and then they'll take their shots occasionally downfield and catch you off guard. When they have done that, they've been really explosive in the pass game with Riley Webb, who has uh, had scored eight, uh, eight touchdowns, I think it is now this year, and, uh, and Rainey. The, the the thing with Brandon when they made the switch to him last year was that they wanted to get back to Citadel football. Uh, uh, their starting quarterback to begin last year was more of a thrower in Jordan Black, and they thought they'd be able to throw the football more, and then that wasn't working out. So they switched back to Brandon, and they thought, well, he was a fullback. He can run downhill. He can provide the, the, phys the physicality we're looking for in this offense. And in his first start last year against Western Carolina, he attempted one pass the whole game because they said, well, he's just not good enough to throw the ball in this offense. And now we've gotten to a point this year where not only is he setting that record because of his legs and his ability to find the end zone, but because of his arm and the big play ability he's brought to this offense through the air with uh, almost now double-digit passing touchdowns to uh, Riley Webb, allowing him to break that record two-thirds of the way through the season. I think the big play ability is impressive, Luke, but I'm focusing more on the efficiency with him. The stat that I have is that the Citadel hasn't thrown for better than 52% in the air since 2009. This year, Rainey is at 57%. That's not just a little better. That's a lot better than the last decade. Just playing a bit last year, 15 passes. This year, he's throwing 73. Do you think he is that much better than the last decade worth of Citadel quarterbacks? Is it maybe too small of a sample size to tell yet? These are quite the impressive numbers. Yeah, it's a good question. And Coach Thompson was asked how Rainey, how he would compare Rainey to the rest of the quarterbacks in the Southern Conference earlier this week, which is always a tough comp because Rainey is so different from everybody. But even in Coach Thompson's a comparison from Rainey to past quarterbacks in Coach Thompson's six years here, uh, you know, he said he was more of a, he's not like some of the throwing quarterbacks they've had in the past. And that's why I think the success he had is so, has had is so surprising because 
like I said, when he took over, I mean, the scouting report, even from the coaches themselves, was don't expect a lot of pass attempts. Uh, and last year, he really, the numbers he referenced, he didn't throw it very much to finish out last year. And this year, they've opened it up a little more. And a big part is uh, Riley Webb as well with his ability. Uh, the coaching staff believes that if he wasn't at the Citadel, he would be an NFL prospect, that he has the size, the speed, the hands, the quickness of an NFL wide receiver. And they're lucky and fortunate and grateful to have him here. And it's the type of situation where a lot of times you just throw it up and he'll run under it. And he did that twice Saturday against Mercer. So that's the quarterback's best friend that you know uh, just out, out throwing, if anything. And Riley Webb will be able to catch up to it. And he's done that this year with a lot of big plays. Whenever they need a big play on offense, it hasn't come on the ground. Uh, they've only had four runs this year of over 25 yards. The big plays have come through the air, and they've all come from Riley Webb. Well, he's had some big games. ETSU certainly familiar with him. Two years ago, he uh, caught a touchdown pass and actually ran uh, a score in as well. They ran a reverse with him. And then I think he had, uh, I think it was eight catches. I know it was 116 yards, but he had seven or eight catches down in Charleston a year ago. So certainly Riley Webb is somebody that I was going to uh, speak on. The the one thing I think is impressive, did, did Rainey play quarterback in high school his senior year? Because I think I read where his sophomore junior year, he was a wide receiver. And I'm just curious because he would have only played one year of high school quarterback if he did play that his senior year. And then obviously now a college quarterback. I find that impressive that he even played maybe one season of high school as a quarterback, then was a fullback, and now they've sort of transitioned into a, a quarterback. Yeah, those two have a really interesting story, both he and Webb, because they're actually – they played with one another. They're both from Ackworth, Georgia, so they have a good rapport and that good connection that you need from a quarterback and a wide receiver going back to their days prior to the Citadel. And actually, as it, as it works out, um, as the story goes – I've only read about it. I haven't even actually talked to Brandon or, or Riley about it, but Webb was originally, I guess, his center, and he would snap the football to Rainey uh, going back a number of years, and this is how they got to know each other so well. And uh, and eventually they moved Riley to the outside. But but he, he came to the uh, Citadel as um, he was originally supposed to be a defensive back, and then they saw in practice when he was on the scout team early on uh, just how quick he was and that he was able to keep up with all the wide receivers and it was a defensive coordinator at the time Blake Harrell that told the offensive side hey I think you guys need to give this kid a try on offense he's just he's so quick he could be so explosive so it's funny that Riley Webb has changed a couple of different positions uh going back to his days as a youth in Georgia where he started out on an offensive line then on defense now as a wide receiver and as you mentioned Rainey came here and originally was a fullback and then now has become the quarterback once again, or he originally came to campus as the quarterback, moved the fullback back to the quarterback. Even Ryan McCarthy, the number two wide receiver, was the quarterback, and then Brandon kind of beat him out, and he became a wide receiver, and he's done really well on the outside. So a lot of moving pieces. The, some of the most important parts of this offense are guys who weren't originally supposed to be where they are or playing the roles that they are currently in this offense. That's so interesting to me with Rainey. That's almost the exact same story as Darren Granger at Furman. I mean, a wide receiver up to his senior year of high school, and now you look at two quarterbacks that were maybe not thought to be as such when they were either heading into their senior year of high school or when they got to campus, and now they're leading a couple of teams that certainly have a chance at the Southern Conference Championship, which is where I want to go next. Luke, what is the mindset of this team, this Bulldog team, a game behind Wofford and Furman, half game behind Chattanooga, maybe even an outside shot with that Georgia Tech win and an at-large bid to the FCS playoffs? What are the conversations like around Charleston about this team's possibility of making that postseason? 
Well, they're confident. The team's confident. They're hopeful. The fans are certainly hopeful and buying in. Uh, sold out this past weekend. It was homecoming that helped, but uh, the support from the, the fans around here as well has picked up over the last couple of weeks. But when you talk to the coaches and you talk to the team, they know what is uh, on the table or potentially could be on the table this year and what's in front of them. But uh, like any team, they're focusing on one week at a time. And so their expression all year and certainly more so these next couple of weeks is just let's go 1-0 and this week. Let's just win this week. And if we keep winning each week, by the end of the year, we'll put ourselves in a position where we could be playing that final game of the year against Wofford, be playing for a share of the Southern Conference title. Uh, the Bulldogs will need some help along the way. We'll be doing some scoreboard watching. But if they don't win out, it all becomes moot and irrelevant anyways. So the Bulldogs, they know uh, that they've put themselves in a situation where something could happen, where they could be in a scenario by the end of the season. But they're just taking it one week at a time. And as they've said, they want to make that Wofford game mean something. Instead of talking about what it could be, let's go make it happen by winning each week. And then it could come down to that final game of the season with a lot on the line. Uh, but if we don't take care of our business before then, then it won't matter. That won't be the case. So we have to control what we can, get some help. That's been the message from the coaches. Just win each week and you know let the chips fall where they may. We're talking with Luke Morrow, play-by-play man at Citadel Bulldogs. Uh, game time will be 3.30 this Saturday, 2 o'clock. Pre-game show coverage on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Let's transition a little bit to the defensive side of things. Uh, two very stingy run defenses. When you look at ETSU, you look at the Citadel. Citadel second in rush defense, only behind Wofford. And more impressively, the red zone defense and not allowing touchdowns. 31 trips opposing teams have made it to the red zone. Just 18 touchdowns allowed. What is it that makes it so difficult for teams, especially when they get inside the 20, to punch it in against the Bulldogs? Yeah, this defensive line has really done a good job. It's interesting. Uh, early on in the season, they went through a stretch dating from last year to this year where they allowed, I think it was 18 straight trips, 16 or 18 straight, straight, uh, straight trips, excuse me, that ended in a touchdown. So they went through a really poor stretch in the red zone defense. And this year, Tony Grantham's running the defense. Uh, first-time uh, defensive coordinator here at the Citadel, first-year defensive coordinator. His brother, of course, runs the Florida defense. And uh, he's done a really good job with his defense that they have become much more aggressive this year. They blitz a lot more. They make a lot more plays in the backfield. And their front seven has looked really good, led by mainly the two linebackers and Willie Eubanks and Marquise Blunt, who have been uh, exceptional for the Bulldogs. But they have some youth on that defensive line that has really stepped up, whether it's Dalton Owens at the nose tackle or Dewey Green, uh, an underclassman at one of the defensive end positions. And so they do a really good job of making plays in the backfield and of stopping the run and so once you get inside the 20 if they're able to keep you from running it in and forcing you to throw and it becomes a little more predictable that's when they're able to pin their ears back and they've uh, really racked up the sacks over the last couple of weeks and against western carolina specifically going back a couple of weeks ago the majority of their sacks came inside the 20 or 30 there the red zones are right outside the red zone when they were able to get them into some longer yardage situations and then go after the quarterback inside the 20. So uh, Tony Grantham's done a really good job. This defense has gotten better each week because they get more comfortable with this new scheme. And it's all about, uh, as he says, making plays in the backfield. And that's that's what they've tried to do, especially as they get close to the goal line. Citadel's always seems uh, every year, at least since I've watched them since the mid-90s on, special teams has always been something they have excelled at. And, of course, uh, got one of the best punters, uh, Matt Campbell. I think he was a freshman All-American, if I'm not mistaken, and or preseason All-American this year. Uh, was on the freshman team, and then Jacob Godak is another guy that seems to have some great range. Yeah, they do. The special teams have been excellent, um, and it's something that's not focused a lot, uh, or teams focused on a lot, especially from fans. 
But it's funny, the Citadel, they made a, a, a real effort to try to improve special teams. And so they actually opened up a position, like a lot of teams at this level, their special teams coach was splitting between that job and another job. He was a position group elsewhere. And Coach Thompson said, I think we really need to commit more of our efforts to special teams. And so he actually took over coaching the A-back position, and he opened up the spot specifically for special teams last year for, at the time, Coach Gunter, J.P. Gunter, who was only focusing on special teams. And last year, the special teams were excellent. As you mentioned, Matt Campbell uh, had one of the best years for a punter in the conference. Jacob Godek had a big bounce back year after a tough 2017, and they blocked seven kicks last year on special teams. And now Gunter left this past season to go to ECU. They bring in a new coach, and he's picked up right where they left off, where they have a couple more blocks on special teams this year. Uh, Matt Campbell has been hurt or was hurt and missed three games, but overall he's been really good. Gage Russell filled in for him, did a good job. And Jacob Godek has remained consistent and certainly clutch as well, especially after a couple of big kicks he made, like the game winner against Georgia Tech. So special teams has been consistently, probably, actually probably the most consistent part of this team over the last two years. Uh, not every week will the offense have a good day. The defense has had some tough outings the last two years. But I can't remember a game that we walked away thinking, man, the special teams really dropped the ball today. Special teams have been really consistent for the Bulldogs, and they put a lot of time and effort into that area of the team, and they've been really, really good once again here in 2019. Well, we appreciate the time, Luke. Uh, hope you have safe travel up here to Johnson City, and we'll talk to you on Saturday. Sounds good. I appreciate the time and looking forward to, uh, if nothing else, another close game. <laughs> I think you can book that. If nothing else, it'd probably come down to a last-second uh, win one way or another. It seems like uh, both teams uh, want to play that way. That's Luke Morrow, play-by-play man, Senator Bulldogs. We'll hear from Adam Sayers, ETSU head women's soccer coach, about the postseason. Right for this time, out your word from Sanderson sidekick on the Bucket Air Sports Network. Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty, naughty and nice, hot and cold. Well, add instant and jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network, Jay steps aside. Head coach Adam Sayers, ETSU Women's Soccer. And what is this, your number 10? Nine or 10? Nine. Number nine. You're about to be on a decade here at ETSU, coach, and you're heading into the postseason tonight. In case you're not aware, we've talked about it earlier in the show, and now the Wednesday 7 o'clock kickoff coming against Citadel, a repeat of, let's see, 10 days ago, 11 days ago now, uh, ETSU and the Bulldogs at Summers Taylor Stadium. It was a Sunday. It was a 3-1 win for the Bucs. They hope to have the same result tonight. It's the 8-9 in the Southern Conference postseason with the right to move on and face Sanford. No reseed in the SOCOM postseason. So regardless of what happens with the 7-10, the 8-9 will face uh, Sanford, who shared the regular season title with Furman on kind of a crazy last day where anything could have happened, and it turned out that Furman, I believe, after running through the league pretty much uh, against Mercer, lost two to nothing on that final day and ended up sharing the Southern Conference regular season title um, with Sanford. So that's the layout. And coach, I just love to talk about the year overall. It's your first time on the podcast this year. We had you on a bit earlier last year, but considering we are having you on later in the season. Let's talk about 
what you lost from last season. Team looking completely different this year. 18 newcomers. I have not found a school in the country in women's soccer that has had that many. Maybe out there. I just haven't found it. When I've told other coaches talking pregame, like, oh, you know, 18 newcomers, they give kind of a chuckle, like, 18? How is he managing that? But obviously a lot of new faces, a fantastic graduating class from last season. Catch us up on ETSU women's soccer, what the team looks like this year after that great graduating class left. Yeah, as you say, uh, you know, graduated 13 players last year, um, which was a, a big class, the biggest class we've had graduate, and therefore that leads to um, our largest incoming class uh, that we've ever had. Um, it's been a, a, an interesting year, a fascinating year, really. Uh, the players have been brilliant. They've been brilliant start to finish. Um, the attitude's been there, the work ethic. Um, a, a lot of things have gone well a lot of things have gone against us um, but the most important thing that the attitude's been there the consistency of performance has been there obviously with so many new faces it's been a, been a, a steep learning curve for a lot of players um, and you know for myself as a head coach it's the biggest incoming class I've ever worked with um, so that's been an interesting experience and, and a learning experience for me as well the leadership we've had from our, our senior group has been awesome um, Elena Pisani is played wonderfully this year an absolute warrior at the back um, and is led by example uh, in every single game and every single training session Ali Duggan um, same with her um, an absolute warrior a battler and, and Courtney Gaylord at right back as well they've been a fantastic senior group um, and, and good leadership from other areas of the team as well some other upperclassmen um, uh, Kendall King being one um, it, it's been good uh, in that regard and that's really helped the new players settle in I think and um, uh, you know we, we, we've gone through a lot of close games as you can see from all the scores within the conference and, and out of conference play where we've been in uh, you know the, the, the games we've won the games we've tied uh, and even some of the ones that we've come out on the wrong end of the result have all been very very close and the performance has been there in so many aspects um, a couple of bounces have gone our way um, we need to be a bit more clinical in front of goal um, but in terms of how we've performed and the progress we've made uh, it's been absolutely fantastic I couldn't be prouder of the players um, that they're a great group and uh, essentially now we enter this new chapter um, that, you know, we close the door in the regular season and, uh, and, and we're full steam ahead into the conference tournament which we're very much looking forward to so, so overall um, you know, considering the transition we had we've made a lot of progress and I think the future looks bright for the program What was your outlook heading into the season versus what you got from the team this year and I ask that simply because you are in some kind of uncharted territory with 18 newcomers and knowing the quality you lost last year you've got 6 or 7 players from that graduating class that are off playing internationally I mean this was truly a special class so knowing you're losing that you're very aware of it obviously and seeing what they're able to do and how accomplished they are becoming on the international stage and, and seeing who is coming in what did you think was going to happen this year what were you expecting versus what you've got um well you know we were expecting really uh, a fairly open competition for places in the team Obviously, you go into any season with a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and and you know we we did a, t a tremendous amount of, of of planning and preparation going into the season with how we thought things would go. You never really know until all the players are on campus and you've got them training together, and then you can start identifying out. You know, you you learn as much as you can about players and their personalities in the recruiting process, um, but you know you never really get that complete picture 
and, until they all arrived together on campus. Um, and it was quite a fractured start because, you know, we entered pre-season, we were still waiting for a couple of players to arrive. Um, and Tiana Josic and, and Nadja Krejcik didn't arrive until four games in. Right. So we, you know, we, we were without without the full squad, not just throughout pre-season, but, you know, several games into the season. Um so, you know, we dealt with those sort of obstacles as we went on. But we had, an, you know, obviously we have a, a philosophy and a, and a set of values that run through everything we do, how we train and how we play and how we want to play. Um, and then once you get the players on, you work with them on that philosophy and then you're looking at the best tactical way to set the team up, what our options are in terms of rotation. Within the college game, perhaps more so than any other area of soccer, um, adaptability and flexibility are very important because... You know, in most soccer situations, you can only make three substitutions, so you can you can really identify how an opposition team plays, and within the flow of that game, they can only make three substitutions. In the college game, you can make as many substitutions as you want within a certain framework. So, you know, a team could set up a certain way tactically, change eleven players after twenty minutes, and be set up in a completely different way. So, you have to be adaptable and flexible to to that, and you have to be that yourself, so you can pose those problems for the opposition. So. So, you know, we, we expected going into the season that we wanted to have that flexibility, be, have, a, have a system, of, have a style of play and a philosophy of play. But then within that, can we set the team up in different ways, different systems of play, different formations, so we can be effective ourselves and then create different um, problems for the opposition to try and solve and, and try and hurt them that way. So going into that, because there was so many new players, um, you're starting further back in that process than you normally would. We had a great spring session with the returning players, and, and as I say, they were, they've been great since, since day one um, and, uh, and, and really helped the new players settle. But because you have so many new personalities to, to become fam more familiar with than you are from the recruiting process and so many different uh, tendencies and, and, and strengths and characteristics um, that, that you try and shape a team from, um, we really went into it with an open mind and with a fairly clean slate. Um, we expected progression, we expected improvement, and we've had that all the way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, here we are in the pro season, we think with a strong team and a real chance to make a run at the tournament. I've been really impressed with your back line, Elena Pisani and Marina Bradich in the middle, and then Rafael Giuliano and Courtney Gaylord at right and left back, and then Tess Morozik in net. Seems like that's been a real strength. Also, you look at standouts, and you mentioned Angela Krejcik. She really just jumped right in and started to do her thing. Five points against Delaware State. I believe it was four or five straight games with an assist. Can't quite remember the exact number, but it was quite the run for her, and she ends up finishing fifth in the Southern Conference in assists a real playmaker and while you've maybe had some struggles in finishing the chances have certainly been there offensively so on both ends of the pitch seems like you have brought in or returned real quality on both ends which is huge uh, what do you need to do to improve that finishing just a bit to capitalize on some of those opportunities um, well yeah I agree with you that the defense has been fantastic and again you mentioned the five players there the, the back four and the goalkeeper um, four of those are essentially different from what we primarily had in those positions last year right. you know with Izzy, Vic and Pauline across the back and Leanne in goal um, Elena uh, you know obviously was, was a captain and, and for us last year as well um, and they've been brilliant you know um, the, the previous season Courtney was fantastic at right back um, Rafa jumped between midfield and, right, and left back for us in previous seasons but has really made the left back spot our own this year uh, Marina's been fantastic and as you say Tess has been great in goal um, but yeah going forward obviously you know it, it would have been really beneficial to have have Nadja from the start of the season because he, yeah, 
when I mentioned earlier adaptability and flexibility the college game is so unique in its intensity and then the volume of, of games in such a short space of time that takes time for players to adapt to because it's such an increase in physical activity and the game is very physical and fast so and to know just each other on the pitch working together exactly. getting that final ball correct exactly yeah the, you, you want it takes time to develop an understanding and the more new personalities and faces you put into the mix the longer that can take which is what we've been working on all season um and uh um you know the, the players take time to adapt to the physical nature of the game and they've done so over time um, but yeah as you say we're creating chances we're, we're posing threats to the opposition um, we just need to, to start converting them more efficiently uh, in front of goal obviously you know the the forwards have been great Sydney's playing you know with a, with a with a painful knee she's playing through pain Sarah Connolly's playing through pain um, it's uh, Megan took a horrible knock against VMI a couple of day, a couple of games ago on, on the Friday um, so she's in pain so it's uh, they're working hard um, they're, they're putting everything on the line for the team um, and we just got to keep creating, creating chances, keep keep providing the opportunities for them, and and the luck's going to turn. I mean, you know, it's it's we've hit the underside of the crossbar twice in one game, where the keepers are, are, we're up against the plane very very well. So we just got to be you know a bit more clinical, but but they're doing great, they're working hard, um, and it's just a case of of keeping to create the chances, keep creating the chances for them, so those shots those those will eventually go in. I'm yeah, sure. there's six or seven matches that we can point to and have on the broadcast all year on ESPN three, ESPN plus, Southern Conference Digital Network, where a bounce goes this way, that way, a ball slips through a keeper's hands rather than her, you know, catching it on the second bounce, one that could have really gone anywhere and uh, talking about, you know, different offensive opportunities. Sydney Cavender had one in front of net that was really just her and the goalie missed. Now she has put a couple of away recently for her first career points and first couple of goals as well. So that's a positive to see. It certainly seems like the year could look completely differently if there were just a few things in a few games that went the opposite direction, unfortunately hasn't gone that way this year and you've I'm sure I've been around coaching and seen that happen in years like full years where and maybe we're seeing it a bit with ETSU football this year they had every everything go their way last year and this year things not so much where you're losing a lot of one score games where with your team it seems a bit the same if it's a different year a different set of circumstances um, maybe even the opponent has a thing or two different this team could very well be the three or four seed rather than slipping where they have absolutely yeah and it's, it's the nature of sport it's one of the reasons why we love it um, it's unpredictable. Right. Um, it's it's when it goes well, it, it you know it brings you brilliant joys. Uh, when it goes against you, it can bring significant lows, and right. it's how you manage those and how you deal with those that's really important. It's why it's synonymous for life, really. You know, we try and educate our players as much as we can on the parallels between sport and life, and what lessons you can take from this experience to apply in all areas of your life later on because essentially that's what we're doing is you know helping to prepare them for the real world or not the real world sorry the, the world after college right. um but uh, yeah being on both sides of it uh, as you say and it's you know you, you 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 learn over time and you hope over time that those things do even out over time um and it hasn't happened for us yet we you know we, we, we talk about it quite a lot after and we have done after many of the games um that you know some of the chances that aren't going in the players are burying them in training they've buried them mm. in previous seasons um and uh, and it just hasn't quite happened for us during games you know at the latter end of this season um but uh you know we, the, the key is to keep plugging away and to keep doing what you know is right which is play the way we're playing work as hard as we're working and then uh, hopefully they'll even out for us what is now the postseason i was gonna say we shouldn't even say one of those years one of those regular seasons because you do have a whole new chance to start tonight postseason completely different anything can happen 
You beat Citadel on senior day. Sydney Cavender, 90 seconds in. Rafael Giuliano in the 29th minute. Then Megan Sowers put it away in the 82nd minute. Those chances maybe that you did have a lot of the year that weren't going in that day, the players were able to finish those. A 3-1 to one win. Very emotional day, of course, on senior day. Um, celebrating the seniors that you were last Sunday. Now, today is going to be an emotional day. Anytime, I think, and I was in this position. Uh, I'm sure you've been in this position as well. Um, playing a sport you know looking at possibly being your final game for those seniors even just closing out a season knowing that you've got four of them as a collegiate athlete um can always bring extra stress can always bring added emotion can always amplify everything that's going on in your head because it does quote unquote close a chapter of what's going on in your life with the team with the program so with those added emotions, with the postseason, obviously a chance to start fresh. What are you preaching tonight, 7 o'clock, Summers Taylor Stadium, to ensure you get the same type of result you did on senior day? Um, well, yeah, as you say, it was an emotional day because it was senior day. Um, you know, the, the as I mentioned, three brilliant seniors, um, L.A., Ale, and Courtney. They've been great servants for the program. Will go on and be successful in anything they, they choose to do, be it a continued playing career, um, you know, in, in, in a career in their particular field of study, um, they'll they will undoubtedly all three be successful in whatever they choose. Um, and that was our that was our sort of mantra throughout the season was to position ourselves to host a postseason game so we can give the seniors one more game at our home field. Um, they they've graced it so well. They've done they've they've represented the program so well over these last several years. And so we wanted to give them one more game on our home field uh, in the postseason. So that was position ourselves to host a postseason game, which is what we've done. And now we have to approach it in a similar way to we did when we played them 10 days ago. We know it'll be a very tough game, a very battle, a very well coached, very organized, very difficult to play against. And they have that military philosophy that you would expect. Very hard working, very disciplined, uh, never give up, heads never drop. They'll fight right until the end. So you have to match that. We're going to have to match the physical aspect of their game. We're going to have to match their discipline. We're going to have to match their work ethic. And that's the starting point, really, because if you don't do that, then they'll prevail. Um, so our first goal is to do that, is to match them physically and ensure we're outworking them or we're not being outworked by them. And from there, we'll look to exploit the space. You know, in, in They've used different systems of play throughout the season. Um, and, and in soccer, as in many other aspects, if you where you look to gain an advantage somewhere, you sacrifice something somewhere else. So based on how they set their team up, they'll be conceding space somewhere on the pitch. So it's a case of sticking to our philosophy and trying to exploit the space that they leave, be it in wide areas, be it behind the fullbacks, be it in the space between the midfield and defence. Um, so it's it's uh, start the game strongly, get the ball down and play it as we know we can play it quickly, play on the front foot, play a possession-based game and build through the thirds, um, switch play where appropriate and try and exploit them. And then when we do create those chances, um, make sure we take them. Appreciate talking to you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Adam Sayers, it's been a while since we talked to him. Last year on the podcast, he is back. Glad to have him on the show. When we come back, it is the FCS Top 25. Make sure, though, you're out tonight. Summers Taylor Stadium, 7 p.m. If you can't make it, make sure to watch on the ESPN Family Networks and the ESPN app. The Bucks and Bulldogs Southern Conference postseason play. Back on Sandos and the Psychic and the Buccaneer Sports Network after this. ETSU fans, there is no more entertaining way to spend your Wednesday nights than with the human soundbite reel, Randy Sanders. It's big boy football. The Buccaneer head coach joins Jay Sandos live at Wild Wing Cafe every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. And if you can't make it to downtown Johnson City to have chicken wings and tater tots with coach, you can listen right here on AM640. 
all fall long, ETSU head football coach Randy Sanders, Wednesday nights. What time is it anyway? 6 p.m. on the Sports Monster. Second down, third down, fourth down. For first down to fourth down of every FCS Top 25 game in the country last week, it's the FCS Top 25. Brought to you by Stats. Hello? Wow. Just got it pumped up this week for well, it. I was, huh? uh, hey, I, I was not sure that the bumper was over. First, it, set, third, fourth, it, and down. And then i got to be honest, I thought I, I, I had completely prepared for the wrong segment when you started hitting the buttons. Three. Love it. I can't wait for four downs. I don't know if we're actually doing them this week, though, so okay. don't get too All excited. Right. FCS Top 25 stats, FCS Top 25, and NDSU, a game that lived up to the hype. Adam Cofield, 71-yard run with two and a half minutes to go to break open a tie game in the fourth quarter against what was the number three team in the country, South Dakota State. Trey Lance, just 138 total yards. But the Bison averaged nearly eight yards per carry, rushing for over 325 yards as a team on the final attempt for South Dakota State in the fourth. A negative run and two sacks before a fourth and 23 play failed to convert. NDSU still number one. You still kind of got to Did you go over the fourth down call? No. So, happened to watch the game, uh, the rest of the game on the van ride home. Okay. And it was a seven point lead, North Dakota State. South Dakota State actually goes about 75 yards, scores. North Dakota State throws an interception. They went a halfback pass, and in the halfback, instead of that was a perfect called corner blitz. Instead of North Dakota State eating the the running back eating the sack, he decides, well, you know, I always want to play quarterback. I'm going to go ahead and throw this while I'm getting pummeled. Threw it straight up in the air, and the defense lineman intercepted it with nobody around him. South Dakota State returns the favor by throwing an interception right at the 20-yard line back to North Dakota State. North Dakota State proceeds to get nine yards and seven eighths. It is literally they they measure it's two links short oh. of a first down. Fourth down, two like forty to go in a game. North Dakota State lines up to run a play. South Dakota State calls timeout. Then they line up to run another play. North Dakota State calls a timeout. So we got some hot drama here. Are wow. they really going to run it? Are they not going to run it? Are they just trying Tension to get builds. people to use timeouts? No, North Dakota State thinking, well, we've won seven national championships. Why not run the football? And then they break it for a 71-yard touchdown. To the house, Adam Cofield. Yeah. Still number one, the Bison. JMU number two after a 27-10 win over Towson, who were previously ranked number 21 outside of a five-minute stretch in which the Tigers scored their 10 points. Zero tallies on the day. For my favorite Flacco, that being Tom, just an okay day for him. 18 of 32, 210 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Not enough to pull Towson to the win. Receiver Brandon Polkate catches 121 yards and a touchdown for the Dukes. This is where... Our guest last week, your guy Keith Brake is not happy. Weber State, number three, they hop the Jackrabbits of South Dakota State. It was a five-field goal day from Trey Tuttle and at least seven points in every quarter from the Wildcats. It was 
not as close as the final score indicated, really. 36-20, to 20, the win for Weber State. UC Davis was number 22 entering the week. Spoiler alert and probably a long overdue demotion. UC Davis finally out of the poll. But more importantly, do you agree with the host of the breakdown from 4 to 6 daily on Bison 1660 AM in Fargo, North Dakota, that the Jackrabbits have gotten jobbed? Uh, let me say this. He also went out of his way to then take a shot at your favorite team, Kennesaw State. He, Love him. He, he, he doubled down on about everything. Okay, he doubled down on a lot. I do think it's very difficult, and I think it'll work itself out, Weber State, Sacramento State, this week. But to me, I just happened to watch it, and I know that most of the people didn't, and that's the problem sometimes with this. It's just, hey, let's check the scores. They beat so-and-so by a lot. They lost here. But I mean, you lose in that situation, couple minutes to go. To me, it's tough to to drop. But I don't know that it's as egregious. I mean, Weber State beat a ranked UC Davis team like a drum, and they're going to play Sacramento State. So I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm not upset about that. If South Dakota State would have dropped below Kennesaw State, I would have lost my mind. That would have got me to jump on the Keith Brake tweets and show and texts and everything else that uh, he was doubling down. I, I think if because if Weber State would have or will beat or will uh, if they beat, I guess I should say Sacramento State and beat them pretty handily, then I would vote Weber State over South Dakota State the next week. So to me it's a moot point. It's going to work itself out. If if Sacramento State beats Weber State, then I get a little bit of a dilemma. What am I going to do with Sacramento State? What am I going to do with um, um, Sacramento State and South Dakota State? That's a little, little bit interesting. Uh but uh, I'm not as appalled to that uh, as what he is because I feel like it just works itself out this next week. I lose my mind every time Kennesaw State jumps the spot. And they did this week. Don't complete a pass, but it doesn't matter because they were playing yet another hapless opponent in North Alabama. Five players rushed for 60 or more yards. In transition. And Daniel David, or is it David Daniel? I'm not quite sure. It goes 0 for 4 throwing the ball. 0 for 4. 0 yards. And he was the only one to throw a pass. Zero for four as a team, the Owls, and they win. I don't even know the final score. That's how much I care about Kennesaw State. Number six, Sacramento State. You mentioned him a couple times. Cal Poly drops to two and six because Sac State is still rolling. 38 to 14. Elijah Dotson, 176 on the ground and three touchdowns in the 24-point win. The Hornets have now won four straight. And in their six wins this year, they have averaged just a shade under 50 points per game. Their only losses to Arizona State. My favorite guy, Herm, who's really having his struggles right now, unfortunately. 19-7, that final. And Fresno State, 34-20. to So, two-score games against a pair of FBS opponents. Otherwise, the Hornets are racking up the points. They are number six this week. Illinois State, the Redbirds. Ho-hum, another quiet week for them, but another win. They've scored more than 28 points just two times this year, but in their last three Ws have allowed just 28 combined points. 24-7, to the final over Indiana State. James Robinson from 77 yards takes it to the house. And Jeff Proctor, a one-yard run. It was fourth quarter touchdowns, sealing the victory after it was 10-7 to going to the final frame. Montana, those last three teams, Kennesaw State, Sacramento State, Illinois State, all up a spot. Montana up two with a 34-17 win over Eastern Washington. And this is where I just want to make sure that we remember what Eastern Washington did last year. Three playoff wins, eventually losing to NDSU in the championship game. They're now 3-5 and five and unranked, sixth in the big sky to you, is that the most surprising fall from grace in the country at the FCS, or we can even throw in the FBS level as well? Yeah, even with the FBS, I'm going to say, yeah, I think it still is. I, I think there's – I was trying to think. There was um, – was it Miami that was ranked so high earlier this year and just went 
pummeling down the, the like couple losses, and they went from like I remember you know, Nebraska doing that. I don't know. Oh gosh, that was another one. Sure There's been a couple, yeah, you know, preseason rankings there, right? But uh, no, that was a. But I'm going to give that the top billing of fall from grace. What do you think of that? Uh, I like it. UNI number nine. I mean, that would be like essentially at the FBS level, Clemson, which I predicted falling from grace, Correct. but they have not. They have not uh, until Wofford this week. Go ahead. Yes, fantastic. Good battle between Central Arkansas and Sam Houston State. The Bears and the Bearcats. And thanks to a Tyler Hudson 15-yard touchdown catch from Braylon Smith, a 25-22 deficit late in the fourth quarter, turns into a 29-25 win to knock Sam Houston State from the number 21 spot in the country back to the number one spot on the outside looking in category. 205 points behind Nichols for the number 25 spot. As for Central Arkansas, up two spots to number 10. I want to get your take after number 11 because it's Villanova. What a game between them. Oh, man. And Stony Brook, the Wildcats down six spots, a back-and-forth, up-and-down affair that saw Nova lead by 18 at the half, only to lose on a field goal with triple zeros on the clock. Nick Courtney from 22 yards to give Stony Brook the upset. Remember, just three weeks ago, JMU only beat Stony Brook by seven. This time, no near misses for the Seawolves, who get 121 in a score on the ground from Tyson Lawton. Back-to-back losses for Nova after starting 6-0, and albeit the other one coming to that same James Madison team. Life is tough in the CAA. Well, first of all, let's go over the fact that Villanova was up 35-20. Stony Brook scores a touchdown, kicked extra point, right? Down eight, score a touchdown, go for two, miss it with 132 to go. Ugh. Get the ball back and kick the game-winning field goal. So, I mean, even if you're looking at it, the last four, was it 450, 445, something like that? I mean, Stony Brook scores, uh, was it, six to, yeah, 16 unanswered to pick up the win. So, Stony Brook, great for you, and for Villanova, you're just sitting there probably scratching your head. Um, and the Bucks, similar like Western last year. Western's up with, what, four and a half, almost the same amount of time, four and a half ETSU. Now ETSU had to go for two and got it twice, able to get to 16. That went to overtime. This was a 15-point, still able to come from behind. So uh, good for Stony Brook, finds himself back in the top 25, I'm sure you'll say in a minute. Very Tennessee Tech-Sanford this year as well, that kind of resembled. Princeton, number 12, after being so strong to start the year, they needed a comeback to top Harvard. 14-10 to 10 at the half, the Crimson led, but Colin Eady, two third-quarter touchdowns, takes the lead back for the Tigers. Quarterback Kevin Davidson, 3-12 and three scores in the air. Furman, number 13, down early to Western Carolina, 7-3 after a quarter, but the Paladins able to pull away thanks to a strong defensive performance allowing Tyree Adams and the Catamount offense just 264 total yards, 28-7 to the final. Furman tied atop the league. We haven't talked about the Southern Conference really in depth yet this week. Your thoughts on the SoCon exiting this weekend? This, uh, I think the SoCon is in a lot of trouble when you talk about looking at, at I think Wofford winning five in a row I think is huge. I think n- even, Wofford's going to have to win out to even get in the conversation of hosting a game. I don't think anybody in the Southern Conference is going to host a, a, a being a top eight seed. I don't think anybody's going to be a top eight seed, and I think the Southern Conference for the first time in a long time is in danger of being a one-bid league. I think what would help the league is if Furman would win the regular season and Wofford's name carries him enough or vice versa. Wofford wins, and maybe Furman has just enough juice the rest of the way to get in to get two teams in. Plus, there's still a lot of a lot of teams that uh, have have a ways to go. What hurt Wofford is they've only played 11 games. So instead of playing that 12th game and p- picking up an extra win or a possible extra win, they only have 11 chances. And now, especially with Florida A&M playing the way they are and South Carolina State dropping the way they are, I think the Southern Conference is in some real danger. Especially if Sanford comes back and takes the automatic bid. I think it's real difficult for a down year for the SoCon to get more than one team. It's going to be very difficult. If Furman 
wins out and Wofford loses, obviously, to Clemson and to Furman, but beats Mercer and Citadel. Seven wins for Wofford. They're number two in the league. Furman, the uh, champion. And, and they're all they, at least they're all Division One wins, right? They did not play a non-D1, to, to my knowledge. They did not play a non-D1. Okay. Gosh, so, that South Carolina State lost at the beginning and, of the year. And that eight, just that, killed. That, that, that guarantees you. Oh. If they would have had eight wins, that guarantees them in. I would almost uh, almost for sure. I don't think there's any way they would not be in. You know, because you, you're going to have a loss over Clemson. That, that's not going to count against them. But you're talking about an eight win with a loss of Clemson. Maybe two conference losses in the league and, and move on. I, I just think it's tough. I think it's going to be tough um, for Wofford. Just Six South teams. Carolina State. Six teams within a win of the top of the SoCon, too. We're, we're, we're talking about this like it's Wofford-Furman, but that's very presumptuous considering Citadel, Sanford, VMI, 3-2, and two, Chattanooga, 3-1. and one. You know, and, and here's the truth. If Chattanooga catches a two-point conversion, <laughs> right, then Chattanooga is, is in a talk because you're, you're, you're sitting there going, okay, we're not going to penalize them for Tennessee. You're not going to penalize them for uh, JMU at, at Jacksonville State, and you're not going to penalize them for JMU. At Jacksonville State, which we're going to talk about in a second, and that two-point conversion had won 32 consecutive home games, mm. Jacksonville State, until that loss to SEMO. But again, we'll talk about that in a second. Montana State, number 14, down five spots thanks to North Dakota. After sneaking by a pretty porous Cal Poly team two weekends ago, UND, an upset of Montana State 16-12. to The winning touchdown, how about a blocked punt? by Alex Cloyd, recovered in the end zone by Jason Coley with 4.21 to go in the fourth quarter with the Fighting Hawks, formerly the Fighting Sioux, trailing 12-9. to Bobcats, third loss of the year, their second consecutive. Dartmouth, a dismantling of Columbia, 59-24, to a couple of rushing touchdowns, a couple of passing touchdowns, an INT return for a touchdown, a punt return for a touchdown, plenty of ways to score. They found most of them up two spots this week. North Carolina A&T also up two spots, 64 points, the most in the FCS Top 25 this week, edging Dartmouth for that title though edged in the pole by the Big Green were North Carolina A&T. 64-6 their win, NCA&T. Jermaine Martin, seven carries, three of them touchdowns, 138 yards. Florida A&M, 24-12, the win over Morgan State. Since getting shut out by UCF in their opener, 62 to nothing, and I'm quite sure no one would have predicted these next seven games. Seven straight wins, five straight by one score, and then this 12-point win over Morgan State. I'd say a little bit of 2018 Buccaneers to them this season. Five straight one-score wins, and a number of them were two- and three-point wins before that 24-12 win. Oh, you're looking at it, and it's and I think I was reading this off to you a little bit earlier. I mean, besides the first game of the year, right? That was the one where was it, it was UCF, I think That's it was. Right. It's got throttled, and then they just – the Rattlers just keep plucking people off. I mean, 42-40, 30-28. I mean, you just look at the score margin there, but – I mean, give credit. Sometimes you need to have stuff like that. But this this blowout, if you will, this just breakout game, 12 24 double, points. I, it's better. Doubling them up, Mike Gallagher. <laughs> Instead of winning by two and by one and by three, they're doubling up Morgan State, the Bears. Uh, I think right now Florida A&M, the dark horse in the Heritage Bowl go. Wow. Number 18, Sebo rises six spots this week after beating UT Martin, who were number 26 last week, just outside the polls. So essentially a ranked win, 17 to 10 the final, just 263 total yards for Southeast Missouri State. But they find a way, kind of reminds you, speaking of Bucks, of the Bucks versus Furman this year when the Paladins got just 268 yards of total offense and won 17 to 10 over ETSU. Central Connecticut State, number 19, a shutout win over the LIU Sharks, one of 15 winless conference teams in the FCS right now. They are also winless overall, one of just six FCS teams that have that unfortunate distinction. But Central Connecticut State up four spots this week, now seven and one overall. Stony Brook, 
Already talked about them entering the rankings this week because of that win over Villanova. Number 20 in the poll. Number 21 is Towson down five spots because of their loss to JMU. Jacksonville State up three spots. A nail-biting 14-12 win over Murray State. JSU's 32-game home win streak we just talked about broken by SEMO last week. Then they narrowly hang on this week for their sixth win of the year. Wofford talked a bit about this game on Monday, 35-34 the final. I did go back. And watch the two-point conversion. Nick Tiano in the offense going for the win. And that hit Reginald, Reginald Henderson, Henderson right man. between the numbers. Again, let's just go over this. Reginald Henderson made like three miracle catches against the Bucks, And he drops it. Can you not drop one of the miracle catches against CTSU? So How about that? Let's look at the standings in an alternate universe in which Reginald Henderson makes the easy catch. He was coming back to the ball from the back of the end zone. I mean, it, it literally, he did jump. But he, when the ball hit his hands, he looked around like he had just been zapped from outer space by an alien spacecraft driving by. Like, I was not sure what exactly happened. Like, he had never seen a football come at him before in his life. It was unbelievable. If Chattanooga would have won that game, Reginald Henderson makes that catch 4-0 and top of the league. Then Furman at 4-1. and Wofford would be 3-2, and and you'd have Citadel, Sanford, VMI all 3-2. and And essentially at that point, you'd think Chattanooga and Furman, two-horse race. Instead, they're still six. So really for teams like Citadel, Sanford, VMI, they're thanking Reginald Henderson for not watching that ball in. It was baffling to see him. Well, first of all, there's two guys open. That was the other crazy part. And I don't know if Henderson was the intended because it seemed like he cut in front of the other receiver. Either way. He goes up, tries to make the play, and you're talking about what would be looking to stay undefeated Chattanooga, now a two-loss Wofford, probably completely out of the playoffs. Maybe not completely, but uphill battle for sure for the Terriers, and now it just opens everything back up. And now you're talking about Chattanooga. Their playoffs may be crumbled away with that as well, unless they somehow can get a tie-break situation where they would win the tie-break within the league, which is still possible depending on how many things break out in the league. If Chattanooga were to win out and Wofford were to beat Furman, does that not give Chattanooga the only one-loss team in the league? I believe so. Yeah, so so Chattanooga could still get in there, which, again, would hurt the league trying to get multiple teams in. So this has just been a crazy Southern, which, again, I think has more Buck fans scratching their head, right, because it would be right there with all of this. But um, it's all very confusing. All right, we'll see what happens. Number 24, North Dakota, an independent in football, by the way. Call me stupid. I didn't know that. Uh, they cling on to it. The Pardon me. They uh, are in the poll after this upset this week over Montana State. Clinging on to the number 25 spot is Nichols, the big losers this week. A 10-spot fall from number 15 to number 25. They lose to Abilene Christian in overtime at home. Nichols, I think, are who you thought they were. You were not so convinced about them at the start of the year no. or even halfway through, and no. now they lose to Abilene Christian, who are now 5-4. and four. It makes me feel better about myself. Mike. Down to number 25 in the poll are Nichols. NDSU still up top. Weber State edging SDSU for that number three spot. Villanova, a fall. Florida A&M and Central Connecticut State still just one loss. Three new teams arrive in the poll, and the SoCon adds a second team for the first time since week four when it was Furman and Citadel. Of course, it's now Furman and Wofford this week. Two huge matchups. Number nine, Northern Iowa at number seven, Illinois State. Number three, Weber State at number six, Sacramento State, as you alluded to earlier. The two top 25 matchups, also a pair of top 10 matchups as four of the top nine in the country square off. Well, and FCF steps. And Furman Chattanooga. And it's not in the top 10. I'm, I'm jumping out of the but top 25. It is a big one because is Furman going to be able to bounce back and then in the hopes that Chattanooga would be four and five overall? 
or does Chattanooga just make this season more baffling and drops Furman to five and four with Chattanooga five and four with the commanding still one game lead? Does Chattanooga really not receiving votes? That is incredible to me. I get that they lost in a two-point conversion to the number 23 team in the country, but again, people just see four and four. Oh my god, that is a trophy. That'd be five and three, That's baby, in recovery. Oh man. All right, oh, Friday we're going to preview the uh, contest. ETSU and the Citadel will get you set. We'll also give you our bold predictions. Austin Herrick will be on. Austin Herrick. We'll talk to him. Uh, maybe we'll do four downs. Yeah, maybe. Santa's psychic on the bucket here. Of course, not work. See ya.